Morning. Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here. We're in week four of a series we called Outdated. And we called it Outdated because we're in Ephesians, end of chapter five and beginning of chapter six, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. And in this letter, he's gotten to the point where he's getting into just a lot of application, particularly he's going to look at over the course of these verses, a ton of different common human relationships. And so we're in week four and week Weeks one and two, uh, we covered uh, the roles of men and women, both in marriage and in the home. And then last week, uh, we covered the role and biblical view of sex. And then today, uh, we're actually going to take a look at the same set of verses in Ephesians, but it's going to take us into another conversation, uh, which is a conversation around the concept of divorce. Now, uh, let me just say a, a few things real quickly about whenever we cover subjects that you may, and we all do this, you know, we, we, we hear a subject or title of something and we think to ourselves, kind of like a TED talk, like, is this something I want to listen to? You know, it's going to be worth my time. Um, but that's not how we listen to scripture. And I, and I want to, I want to clarify, right? So that's fine. If you're trying to figure out if you want to listen to a Ted talk about like your brain, but, but when we listen to scripture, it's, it's not necessarily about whether or not we find it interesting because we believe that the word of God, uh, scripture is the inerrant word of God. It is alive and it is active and it's constantly doing stuff in our lives. And so we don't proof text it. We don't, we don't, we don't sit around and go, well, I don't want to listen to that part, but I do want to listen to this part. When, when God speaks, we listen. That's actually how we were created. And so, uh, yes, there are going to be things about divorce that are very specific to the concept of divorce. And you, and this is the, the common thing. We had this last week, too. I had some people who were like, well, I'm kind of over the age where sex is really an issue for, you, for me, so I wish I just stayed home. And I was like, oh, so you don't know anyone where sex is still an issue? Well, no, I, I mean, I know. Oh, oh, okay. So it's, it's possible then that because God has called you to be a light in a dark world, that, that God has called you to speak truth into a world that is just dominated by death, dysfunction, and deceit, that you may need to know how to reach into an area of, of, of someone that's just struggling with truth, and you, you may need to actually know how to speak the word of God into their life. Well, yeah, oh, well, then, well, then it is important, Right? Amen? It's important to know. No? No, it's only, it's important to me. Okay. Uh, I, I would say this. There's not a person in here that does not know someone that is either in or has been in a struggle with divorce. Look, divorce is so ubiquitous in our culture that no one now is separated from the pain and dysfunction and impact of divorce. In fact, the United States is now uh, has the sixth highest divorce rate of any country in the world. Uh, divorce is divorce rates are so common now that not only do over fifty percent of marriages end in divorce, but those statistics are relatively the same whether we're talking about people inside the church or outside the church. And divorce is a big issue, and and if uh, you're still like, yeah, I, I don't know, I just I'm not sure that I care that much. We're going to answer a question today. I think the, we titled it uh, "Divorce: What to Do When It's Just Not Working." And what I want you to understand is that when we get to the end and we start to talk about what the, the Bible would say is the solution when it's just not working, that it's not simply the solution that the Bible is going to give us for divorce. It's actually the same solution that the Bible is going to give us for any great conflict in your life, for any major struggle in your life where you just feel like you've gotten to the end of this thing and, and really hope is kind of drained out of the situation, whether it's a relationship, whether it's divorce, whether it's anything else. 
else, and you're kind of at what I would call your wit's end, and you're like, I don't know where else to turn, God would say, well, then you're in a good spot. Because where your power ends is where his begins. And, and from that, God's going to give us, in the Bible, some, some things that we would do in order not only to look at our marriage when it's not working, but to look at any other situation in our life. So, so we are going to answer this question, divorce. What to do when it's just not working. Now, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, which is where we were last week. And um, there's a key phrase that we looked at last week that we're going to look at again. And it is this phrase, it, it's a quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that is in quotations in Ephesians 5, and it's in quotations because the Apostle Paul is quoting other scripture, and we see this same quote used over and over and over again. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to say that this idea that two flesh become one flesh is a mystery. It's profound. It's, 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 it's something we still haven't wrapped our heads around because in the Bible, there's this weird math formula where one plus one equals one. That's why it's a mystery. And it's actually the same formula we see for the Trinity. Like how, how it, there, there's some, some difficulty understanding how does God take two separate people and make one relationship, one entity out of them. And so last week we looked at the Paul, Apostle Paul when he talks about this because he uses this exact same phrase to describe in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 issues around sex, the gift of sex, why it's powerful, and because it's so powerful, why it's also dangerous. Today, we're actually going to look at Jesus using this exact same phrase, except he's talking about the issue of divorce. And uh, we need to talk about divorce because it impacts all of us. It impacts everyone here. It is a widespread unavoidable issue inside the world that we live in, inside our country, and inside our church. Now, a couple quick uh, caveats. We always discuss the issue of divorce. When we're, when we're talking about divorce, and there's lots of questions. I got lots of questions this week just because people knew I was going to talk about this. We always discuss divorce when it comes to like the biblical justification of whether or not someone should get a divorce or shouldn't get a divorce. We always discuss that from a perspective of safety. And what I mean by that is uh, in, 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 in any situation in a relationship where there is the potential or there is danger of physical harm or abuse, we would tell those individuals to physically separate while we have conversations around what is a wise path. What we don't say is stay in a physically dangerous relationship in proximity where there's danger while we sit around and talk about it. That would not be appropriate. And the church has been guilty of that in the past and that it's not appropriate. So we're always going to have these conversations from a perspective of safety first, and then we're going to talk through them. Uh, in order to understand the Bible's concept around marriage and why this two flesh becomes one flesh is such a big deal, I will just touch back. Last week, we had a three-minute conversation on the difference between a covenantal relationship and a transactional relationship. Does anyone remember that? Okay, it's really critical, because if you don't understand that, it's going to be really weird to read stuff in Scripture about this whole two flesh, one flesh thing. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, because we largely in our culture really, really talk about relationships more like they're transactional in nature, not covenantal. And so they are different. 
Covenantal relationship is something that God introduced to us when he made a promise, and he promised it on the most trustworthy thing, the most confident, unchanging thing in all of human history, in all of the history of the universe, which was him. God makes his covenant on his own name. And in that, in that covenant, he says, my relationship to you is not based on what you can do for me, it's based on my own commitment to you. That's covenantal relationship. It's based on a promise, not on value. A transactional relationship is based on what you can do for me. I have a transactional relationship with Netflix. You have a certain amount of value you give me, Netflix, and the moment that value's gone, or you want to charge me more money than I think that value's worth, I'm canceling my subscription. I have a transactional relationship with the Walmart, right? Like I, like I go through and I talk to the cashier. Well, you don't even get a cashier now. At Walmart, you get like a little automated thing, right? You have to scan your own stuff. Inflation. But the moment that they want to charge me more than I think the products are worth, I'm not going to go back to Walmart. I have no covenantal relationship with Walmart. I have a, I have a transactional relationship. Marriage was always intended to mirror the relationship that Jesus had with the church, which is a covenantal relationship. One in which I make a commitment that is not based on the value that you provide me. Therefore, we never look at marriage and we start scoring the effort from each other. If you've been reading the marriage devotion that, that we uh, have been handing out uh, out in the foyer, the very first day, the very first lesson is on this idea of scoring. And it's just really weird because we all kind of do this in our heads and you may call it something else, but in, in reality, we all have this tendency, this temptation to do this little valuation where I decide how hard I'm working and I decide how hard my wife's working and I put a value to that. No one else does that? Everyone's chuckling. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> and we have really, like we're really bad at scoring. Like, you know what I'm saying, right? Like when I do my chores, it's just weird how my chores are always worth 10,000 points. And so by like the fifth or sixth one, I'm like, man, I better take a break so she can catch up. I don't want to lead by the, I mean, whoo, just way out in front. Do you know what I'm saying, right? So subjectively, we overvalue our own work, we undervalue our spouse, that's in the nature, that's the beginning, that's the foundation of a transactional relationship, is when I begin to put value to your effort, and I begin to score them and compare them and go, I don't know if you're working hard enough. That's a transactional relationship. It's no part in biblical marriage. Do you understand that? It's no part in the Bible. Sin has added that. We did, that was all us. It was not God. Okay, here we go. We're going to look at Matthew 19. I need to give you uh, some, some, some background to Matthew 19, or it's not going to make as much as a... Uh, this story doesn't make any sense anyways, but when you, when you really understand what's going on, you'll realize how insidious the Pharisees are and, and, and how much Jesus dealt with religious people and, and why he just had absolutely no tolerance to, for religious people. In fact, the harshest things he says in the entire Bible are all the religious people. Uh, scary. So Jesus, in Matthew 18, is leaving Galilee, and he's, he's traveling south, just east of the Jordan River, and he has been uh, healing people, like just miraculous things. He's been healing disease, he's been healing the lame, and he's been doing so many miracles that he's attracted this massive following of people that are now following through the countryside and just walking behind him. And I mean, that's, that would be weird even in those days. It'd be weird for us now, right? Jesus is just like on the highway from Taft, and there's like 5,000 people behind him. It's just, it's just a weird thing. I like, I like talking about Taft. So... 
Jesus is coming down the Jordan and he's got all these people and all he's been doing is healing and teaching, healing, 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 healing. And all of a sudden we get this weird story where Pharisees, which are just religiously elite people that love to just argue about the weirdest things in, in scripture and lord it over everybody else, try to trap Jesus in this doctrinal trap in, the, in sort of the middle of this story. Um, but where they show up is really interesting because Jesus is actually walking down from Galilee and he ends up in this area just east of the Jordan River and it's called Perea. And, and, and it, it matters where he's at because Perea just happened to be a region that was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antip Antipasus. Man, um, and Herod is the guy who we'd already seen in the Bible who had divorced his wife and married his half-brother's wife. And when he did that, John the Baptist spoke out about how bad that was, and he ended up beheading John the Baptist. So they wait for Jesus to get in this jurisdiction where this guy's the ruler who's gone through this nasty divorce, and he's done all this stuff, and then they spring their trap on Jesus. And here's what it says, Matthew 19, verse three. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him in some translations, that says tempted him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to pick one of two prevalent schools of thought back in that time. And what they're really going to be pushing for is, for is this interpretation of a verse in Mosaic law back in Deuteronomy 24.1. And in Mosaic law, it said this in, in Deuteronomy 24.1, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, those are the words that will be at debate, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So there were two views around this, this concept of some indecency of these words. And so one of the prevalent views was this idea um, that divorce is pretty much okay for, for just about any reason. And uh, that view, uh, there are a, whole, a lot of Pharisees that, that uh, adopted that view, um, would, would push back on a lot of the Mosaic law. They would point at a specific translation. They would say, this is what that meant. And you can pretty much get divorced for any reason. That would have been a fairly liberal view. And then there's this more conservative view that Moses commanded divorce for infidelity only. And um, they knew Jesus was actually pretty conservative because he preached on divorce in Matthew 5. So earlier in his ministry, he'd already talked about it. They kind of knew he was conservative. And what they were hoping for is they're hoping Jesus would side with this political conservative group of how they viewed divorce while he was in the region in, under the jurisdiction of Herod who had already done this other thing to get him in political hot water. And so that's why they're asking him. They're like, oh, is it... Is it lawful for this? And so the, the liberal group um, was, or the, the conservative group was actually led by a rabbi. His name was Rabbi Shammai. And he focused his whole argument of this whole group of people in this conservative political group was around this idea of the word indecent in Deuteronomy 24.1. And, and they basically translated it said indecent means sexual immorality. And so really, um, if your wife is, is sexually unfaithful, you must divorce her. That was the prevalent thought in this conservative group. And in this liberal group, they actually were focused on the word some in front of indecency. In some translations, it says any indecency. And they said, no, that means anything that would displease your husband. Anything. So like, you salt his food too much, you're out. You don't salt his food enough, you're out. 
There was another rabbi, uh, Kibi, that went so far as to say, if you find someone prettier than your wife, she's out. It was that liberal. So these two groups, and they want, to find, they want, want Jesus to pick a side, right? I mean, we don't ever do this, right? We don't ever want Jesus to be Republican or Democrat. No? No? Such and such a party is God's party. You can't be a Christian if you vote blank. We don't, you never heard that, right? Okay, I'm glad we're past that and we graduated with all of our extra intellect now. And Jesus is going to answer, like Jesus often answers, number one, with a question. Number two, he's going to point in scripture. But Jesus is going to answer. He's just going to turn the whole argument on its side. And, and he's going to make this point about divorce. And this is our first point for today. Divorce is never part of God's plan. Divorce is never part of God's plan. He answered, here's Jesus. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become, here it is again, one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is not going to look at Deuteronomy 24.1, which is what they're going to actually press him on. He's going to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis 1 and 2. And he's going to say, it was God's intention that marriage, that, that union was permanent, that it was forever. It was never intended to be something that could be dissolved. Marriage is established by God. That's what Jesus is saying here. And the word that he's using for join together, it communicates permanence, unity, bonding, like superglue. Therefore, what, what we're seeing here, not only, is, not only is divorce never part of God's plan, but what Jesus is essentially saying by, by saying one flesh, is he's saying divorce is amputation. It's not a breakup. It's amputation. It's sometimes needed, but it's rare and it's extreme and it only exists because of the disease of sin. The reason he's pointing back to the garden is he's saying, listen, before sin entered the world, there was marriage, but there wasn't divorce. Only one of these two existed before sin. So the, the, the Pharisees have sprung their trap, right? They're trying to get Jesus to come down a lane so they can get him in trouble. So verse seven, they, they, they follow up. Here it is. They said to him, why then? Did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So we're back to Deuteronomy 24.1. I just, I will read the rest of this in a second, but, but you notice how the, Satan does this too. He, he misquotes scripture. Eve in the garden misquotes God. I mean, like, like, well, they take scripture and we just change one little word. He, they say, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus is going to correct that because they've already distorting scripture. They're just changing a word. And here's what Jesus says in verse eight. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus doesn't say they com Moses commanded it. Jesus corrects him and says, no, no, Moses allowed it. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, now here's doubling down. Here's Jesus doubling down. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits 
adultery. Now they're arguing to try to trap Jesus into this battle where he disagrees with Mosaic law and gets himself in political hot water with Herod. And what they're essentially saying is, you know, if the law allows it, then it's, it's okay. It must be okay. In fact, they're even saying since the law allows it, it's commanded. They're, they're, they're taking it another level. And Jesus not only doesn't fall into this trap, this political trap, but he doesn't actually really focus on Deuteronomy 24.1 at all. He almost bypasses it. He goes all the way back to the garden. And then I just, there's an interesting thought here that you need to hear, and because of the legalism that happens in churches, you need to hear, and that's this. Not everything that you're free to do is good for you. Not everything that you're free to do is actually good for you. The apostle Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Essentially what he's saying is, just because divorce would be allowable because of sexual immorality does not mean it's necessary. It does not mean it's required. It does not mean it's commanded. It does not necessarily even mean it would be good for you just because it's allowed. Secondly, we, we can have a long conversation about how the law only exists because of sin. But what Jesus is saying, the concept of divorce only exists because of diseased hearts. When, when Jesus says, because of your hard hearts, he does not say because of our hard hearts, because he's perfect. And he doesn't say because of their hard hearts, speaking about people during the Mosaic time. He says because of your hard hearts, because of your hard hearts. And what he's pointing at and talking about is not a hardened heart towards your spouse. Like, oh, the marriage got so bad. We had, no, no, no. He's saying that this is all the way... Um, the, the, we hear the same thing in Ezekiel. Hard heart is a state of sin and unregeneration. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, we hear, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. When Jesus says they're hard hearts, he is saying it is sin that has created Divorce, or even the necessity of divorce at all. It is hard hearts. Divorce is the ripping apart of one flesh that God has joined together. It was never created to be ripped apart. It's amputation. Now, divorce is amputation, then that means some things about divorce that we should talk about. The first is that sometimes it is actually necessary Jesus tells us there is a reason, there is a justification because of adultery. Now, why adultery and not all the other things that we would talk about that might be, you know, that, listen, people give a lot of reasons about why they're getting divorced. And some of them sound very valid, but Jesus has one, adultery. And you go, well, why that one and not the other ones? Well, remember last week, Paul said there's only one sin that you commit against your own body. Do you remember what it was? Sexual immorality is the only sin that you commit against your own body. And you go, well, that can't be true. 
What about, what about harming myself? What about addictions? What about suicide? I can think of lots of things that I could do that were against my own body. And Paul's like, no, there's one. Because he's not talking about just the physical body. He's saying your whole person, emotional, spiritual, physical, there's one thing, and that is sexual immorality. Because when you commit sexual immorality, you are bonding yourself to another human. It's intended to be within the boundaries of biblical marriage so that you create one flesh. Therefore, when you've done that, and then you go have sex outside of marriage, you are harming your whole self. And that's what Jesus says is the only justification for divorce, is taking that and then using it outside those boundaries and creating devastation. Infidelity creates devastation in marriage. Now, Paul will add to that in 1 Corinthians 7 15 when he says that if, if you are basically you have an unbelieving spouse who abandons you, that also becomes a biblical justification that abandonment of an unbiblical spouse is another reason or a similar reason for divorce. One spouse simply leaves. But there are a lot of serious issues that have led to divorces in history that we do not see listed as biblical justifications for, for divorce. Like there are some serious issues about abuse, physical abuse, and we do not see those listed. And, and those require some real discernment and some real conversation. And those conversations, by the way, should be taking place from a place of safety where there is no physical danger to anyone when you're having those conversations. No one deserves physical abuse and harm. And in these cases, when the church is asked to deal with these things, we ask for spouses to physically separate when we, when we discuss these things. There's also a group inside uh, the church world that believes that divorce is never an option, but that simply isn't biblical. The Bible, uh, in Jesus' words here, describe divorce as an option in very certain circumstances. But to divorce and remarry unbiblically, according to Jesus, is considered adultery. So number one, it is necessary sometimes. Number two, it should be the last resort. The last resort. Why the last resort? Because the rationale for divorce, biblical divorce is so narrow. It, it, sexual immorality and abandonment are the only two biblical things that we see. And it's the only things that we see scripture justify. It's very narrow. You know what we don't see in this little narrow lane? Irreconcilable differences. Anybody heard that one? You know what we don't hear? We just grew apart. We don't hear that. We fell out of love. I think it would be better for the kids. First of all, that's a lie from Satan. We don't see any of those things that we've heard in our world and inside the church at times. It is a last resort, even when biblically justified, because divorce is not a command. It is a concession in the worst of cases. Paul will say the same thing. Divorce is never encouraged. Why is divorce never encouraged? There are certain medical reasons, very severe reasons, why amputation is necessary. When a disease is taken hold to such an extent that there is absolutely no way you're going to save the limb, someone will cut off an arm to save a life. Now, Imagine going to the doctor and being like, hey, I haven't, doc, I haven't been able to like get, I can't, I'm going to get over like this cough. And he's like, I think we're going to have to take the arm. You'd be like, excuse me? Like what? what? Yeah, uh, 
I think we're gonna have to, maybe the leg too. You're like, wait, what? You know, if you had a doctor and, and they refused to amputate when it would save your life, that would be a problem. But if you had a doctor and every time there was any, like any problem, you're like, yeah, I kind of scratched myself. I'm gonna have to take the arm. I think I need two stitches. Gonna have to take the arm. Like you go, this man's whack needs to lose his medical license because it's severe. It's irreparable. It's a huge, like you don't, you don't just amputate because of a small thing. It's a last resort. And so is divorce. Number three, not only is it a last resort, it's not primarily about your happiness. Amputation is not about your happiness. We don't amputate a limb to make you happy. Do you understand that? We don't amputate a limb because you were having a bad week. We don't amputate a limb because you're having a bad month. It's to save a life. And biblically, we actually know that divorce is not about your happiness because of a lot of other verses that describe marriage and divorce in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 13, Paul is giving instructions to various married couples who are going through conflict. And he says this in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So Paul is laying out a case for biblical separation in marriage, but not a divorce or remarriage. And the husband should not divorce his wife. This goes both directions. In verse 12, he says this, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, which just means he's not quoting Jesus directly. It's still inspired uh, scripture. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Listen, if, if this were merely, if divorce were really about your happiness, then divorce and remarriage would be allowed in a lot of other areas. And the proof of that is that these verses about staying with a spouse who is an unbeliever, they don't even, think about how strongly the Bible talks about being married to an unbeliever. I mean, the Bible is, is in no uncertain terms, puts that in, in very good light. Here's what the Bible says about marrying someone who's an unbeliever. If you're, a, if you're a Christian today and you're considering dating, being interested with, going Facebook official with, getting engaged to, messing around with a non-Christian. This is what the Bible would say, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for, ready, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? An unbeliever, according to the Bible, is spiritually dead. You don't marry a corpse. You don't marry a corpse. And only, only God can resurrect that person and, and put a heart of flesh in them and put his spirit inside. You can't. So you can't love them into it. You can't flirt them into it. You can't date them into it. They're dead. You don't marry a corpse. That's how strongly the Bible talks about going into marriage with an unbeliever if you're a believer. Now, in this case, Paul is primarily talking about someone that's been saved and they're in a marriage and they're married to someone that's an unbeliever. And so you'd think, well, man, if it's light and dark, if it's truthfulness, if it's righteousness and unrighteousness, of course you can divorce. And the Bible says, no, 
And you're like, wait, what? Because your life is not your own. You gave that to Jesus. And therefore, the rest of your, your life is not primarily about your happiness. It's about your holiness. And Jesus is going to transform you, and he's going to do that even in that marriage. And actually, if we continue to read in Scripture, what the Apostle Paul is going to say is that your submissiveness to the Spirit and your submissiveness to your spouse and the way you serve the Lord and you serve your spouse in the context of that marriage might lead them to Christ. So no, you're not off the hook. You don't get to divorce them because they don't love Jesus. You get to love Jesus and pursue your spouse who is an unbeliever. And the reason that the Bible can call you to do that for as hard as that is, is because you you don't primarily look to your marriage for peace and contentment. You look to Jesus. It's not your marriage that will suddenly fulfill your life. It's Jesus. And if you're looking for fulfillment and peace and contentment in a human relationship, you're going to end up like the woman at the well who just kept searching, couldn't find it. It's a last resort. It isn't primarily about your happiness. And last one about it being amputation is this. Divorce will leave a forever scar. It will leave a forever scar. You cannot rip apart oneness and not suffer from it. In the same way, you cannot amputate an arm or a leg and just simply move on with life like nothing happened. Now, you can be redeemed by God. You can be used by God. You will have a scar, but that is not a brand or a mark of shame. It's just a scar. And you need to hear that. Because, man, the church has wielded some of this really poorly in the past. Jesus, uh, when he engages the woman at the well, if you remember this story, the woman at the well had been married five times and was in a relationship. She was in the six. She was still searching for fulfillment and contentment through a human relationship when Jesus comes and pursues her. And Jesus pokes his finger in to the fact that she's searching for contentment in human relationships and in marriages. He's the one that brings it up. Jesus pulls that out kind of airs the dirty laundry. Now, this woman is so ostracized in her culture from the fact that she's been married so many times that she's at a well that is miles away from town, even though there's a well in town, just to avoid all of the people who are shaming her because of that. And this woman is at the well in the middle of the day when it's hot instead of in the early morning when everyone would actually go to get water so she can avoid other people because she's so ashamed of this. Jesus pulls it out and then pursues her anyways. He lets her know, hey, I know about your past. I know about your scars. I know the shame that you're holding on to and that other people are laying on your shoulders because of that. And I want you to know, I love you anyways. And then not only does he love her and offer her peace and contentment and salvation, but then he uses her. She goes back to the village and ends up being a missionary in all of Samaria. It starts with the woman at the well who had five marriages, who spreads the gospel first in her town. And then it says to the ends of Samaria, all throughout that whole neighboring region started with a woman who'd been divorced five times. You'll have a scar, but it is not a brand. It is not a mark of shame. So, Divorce as amputation is sometimes necessary. It should be a last resort. It isn't primarily about your happiness, and it leaves a forever scar. Now, it's kind of weird because we don't hear anything else from the Pharisees, right? They try to trap Jesus. 
He gives them this answer like, oh no. And then you literally are out of the story. And I, I just, I envision all the Pharisees like that Homer Simpson meme where he backs back up into the bushes <laughs> and just sort of disappear. Like all of them are like, oh, I did it again. Let's get out of here. Didn't work. But his disciples are still there. And Jesus' disciples offer some really great stories. You know, I mean, if you ever feel like you're just an idiot like I do, just read about Jesus' disciples. You'll feel better about yourself. <laughs> They're really dumb. I always convinced myself I'd be smarter. I wouldn't be. But here's what they say. It really, this is funny, right? Because a lot of them are not married. They've been following Jesus. They got called into uh, this ministry when Jesus went in John 1 and, 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 and recruits his disciples, and they've been following him, right? And so a lot of them aren't married. Jesus isn't married. And so they hear this. Wait a minute. You can't divorce a woman for just any reason because you're not pleased with her? This, they're like, uh-oh. And so one of them says this. Ready? Verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> what are they saying? You know how people get when they like, the most popular things that I ever preach about in the congregation are things that you don't suffer from. Because <laughs> you get to go, yeah, pastor, you tell them. Just leave me out of it. You know, like, last thing you want to hear about is pride and greed because we all got to go, oh, it's me. So they're like, yeah, stay single like us, man. Bros before, oh, I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> getting in trouble. <laughs> they're like, yeah, stay single. You don't need a wife. And then Jesus is going to say some revolutionary stuff. And it's a little confusing because, you know, we don't have eunuchs anymore. But I want to read you what he says because he's actually going to even correct his disciples in this, in this reaction in the middle of this. He's going to say this, and I'll explain it because it's a little weird. He says this. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. So he's already saying, like, you're not going to exactly understand this. But only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. That's weird. Okay. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, no, that, you don't get it. You, you, I'm not telling you that singleness is beneficial because marriage would be hard. He's going, look, there are eunuchs. There are people that were, that were born eunuchs, uh, unable to have sex or have physical ailments or they have some sort of issue and then they don't marry because of physically how they were born. And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs. So this is still a thing back in the first century and it has been for a lot of history where they would you know, castrate a man. Um, and so there's eunuchs that have been made that way by men, by men, other people. And so they may not marry. He, but his third, so other than people that are physically unable to marry, he says, this is the third condition. If it's not one of those two, for singleness. There are eunuchs, there are people that chose to remain single for the kingdom of God. You know what he's, he's leaving out here? He's not saying singleness is okay so you can be selfish and not be transformed in marriage. He's not saying singleness is okay because you know, marriage would be tough and if you had to deal with another human at that level, it would be really hard. And what I just told you is you're not allowed to divorce them. So when, you get, when it gets really rough and it gets really tough and you're in a lot of conflict, you don't get to claim irreconcilable differences and cast them out. So you don't get to stay single because you know that would be hard. 
No, no, singleness is okay when it's a calling for kingdom purposes because Jesus would remain single and celibate for his entire life. And he's saying, no, no, if you want to justify your singleness, actually, I'm going to tell you, and he's going to continue to preach throughout his ministry, and Paul will back this up, that singleness is absolutely part of freedom that you have in Christ to pursue the Lord and to pursue your calling and to pursue your mission, but not because of selfishness. And remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus is the first person in history, in any of these communities, in any of these cultures, that would ever put a stamp of approval on singleness and say, it's okay. Paul will come along and say, it's okay. This is the first time anyone in this culture has ever heard this. Remember, everything is done not in an individualistic nature, but in a communal nature, and everything is about you having a family, you being married, you having kids, you you proving the family name, all achievement, all reward is based on family. You need to be married off by the time you're 18. In fact, that was kind of waiting a little while. Like The only people that were single were prostitutes. Um, It was Caesar Augustus that passed a law in the Roman Empire that if you were a widow, you had to remarry within two years, or they would fine you. No one was single. And Jesus comes along and goes, no, it's okay. But it's okay for the right reasons. It's okay to be single to pursue the Lord. It's okay to be single because of kingdom purposes. But hey, you knucklehead disciples, it's not okay to be single because you're so freaking selfish that you don't want to be transformed by a wife. That's ridiculous. Because when you believe that, then if you are married, then the moment it gets tough, you're like, I need to get out of this thing. Woof. You want me to fold my laundry too? No, okay, look. Folding, yeah, folding. It's easy to get laundry done. Folded is like a whole from Satan, I swear. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. <clears throat> Jesus is not allowing singleness for selfish reasons. That's, that's actually really interesting. Now, I said we'd answer this question. Uh, what to do when it's just not working? What to do when like, hope is gone, uh, when it seems like just irrevocably wrecked, and it's not working, what to do. And I told you at the beginning of this sermon that the recipe from the Bible for what to do when it's just not working is actually the same recipe the Bible's gonna give us for some other areas of our life when there's conflict at this level. So here's the first thing. There's three things, what to do. Here's the first one. Stop looking at the sin, instead look at the design. Stop looking at the sin, and instead look at the design. And this is actually what Jesus is doing when he answers this question. He's not looking at the sin and the brokenness that can happen in human relationships, which is what Deuteronomy 24.1 is about, and it's what these Pharisees are trying to push in on. He's looking at the design, which is why God designed marriage in the first place, back in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. So, so if you're struggling and you're just at the end of your rope and you're in a marriage, you feel like this is not working and there's no hope and there's no chance. Stop looking at the reasons for divorce. Stop looking for a justification for a divorce. Stop looking at, man, can I get out of this? And instead look back at the design. Why are you in a marriage in the first place? Stop looking at the sin because we're responsible for why divorce is even here. And look instead at why God put you together. You know, the only reason we actually have difficulty in marriage is because of sin. Before sin, in the Garden of Eden, marriage existed and there there was no difficulty. It wasn't hard. Think about this. Marriage wasn't hard. That's amazing. Marriage is perfect in the Garden until the moment sin enters. And, and the moment sin enters, 
And Jesus comes and he's, he's addressing the fact that there's sin, right? And, and he's, he, he, he's, he's pressing Adam about this sin, about this disobedience. And what does Adam say already? Here, we, what do we see? The woman you gave me, right? Sin now has entered the world and we immediately have difficulty in marriage. I mean, Jesus hasn't even given them the curse yet. And already it's like, it's fault. We have difficulty in marriage. It's sin. He looks at the woman, which one chapter earlier was a gift that left him speechless. And then he like composes a poem. Read your Bible. Adam literally is a poet all of a sudden, right? He's just, he's composing like this song about this gift of a wife. And one chapter later, it's like that woman you gave me, she's the problem. No, she's the gift. Listen to me. Your spouse is not the problem. They're the gift. Listen, if you're struggling, listen, your spouse is not the problem. They're the gift. Do you hear me? Nod if you hear me. Blink rapidly if you hear me. Your spouse is not the problem. They're the gift. I know it doesn't feel that way. But we do that. We demonize the person. When it begins to get difficult, we begin to look at the sin. We begin to look at the justification for getting out. And we forget about the gift. We forget about the design. Oh, that husband that you gave me, he wants me to submit. Or that wife that you gave me, she wants me to be tender and sensitive. Like, like, they're the gift. Sin is the problem, not the person. Number one, look at the gift. Look at the design, not at the sin. Number two. Do what Jesus did. It's a WW. We'll get little bracelets. All right, we can sell a million of them, right? What would Jesus do? What is, you know, every time Jesus is, is, is faced with one of these questions, like when the Pharisees come up, he quotes scripture. Every single time they ask him something, he quotes scripture. When, when, in the beginning of his ministry, when he goes out to the wilderness to fast and be tempted by the devil, he's tempted three times. His response to all three temptations of Satan is, it is written. It is written. It is written. What does he do? He's quoting scripture, quoting scripture, quoting scripture. They ask him something, he's quoting scripture. Like, what did Jesus do? He quoted scripture. The problem in our marriages is not that we don't have guidance. The problem is that we have sinful hearts that don't want to obey God. I've said this so many times, I'll probably say this every single Sunday until you vomit. When what I feel disagrees with what the Bible says, it is a conversation, it's an argument. Who's right, me or God? Who's right, me or God? It will never change. It doesn't, I can come up with the most lofty human arguments and God will always be right. It doesn't matter how I feel, it matters what God says. This doesn't just uh, matter in divorce. It doesn't just matter in marriage, in every conflict, in every point of your life. When you reach this, this place where you just don't feel like it's working, read your Bible. God has laid it out for us. We just don't like it sometimes. If you're struggling, read your Bible. When you're 
child doesn't feel like eating their food because all they want to do is just gorge on candy and you're just like kind of laughing at their foolishness of how much that would hurt them. I feel like, man, that's us railing on God's instruction. How dare you do this? God's just like, again? Find good, wise counsel, people around you that love God, that love the church, that love you in that order, that have a high view of scripture, a high regard for the Bible, and use their counsel to help you when you and your opinion and your view and perspective of things, particularly your marriage, is distorted. Let them speak truth into your life because they have a high view of scripture and they're going to quote God right back to you and you may not like it, but it will Feed your soul. Look at the gift, not the sin. Number two, do what Jesus did, which is look at scripture. And number three, get desperate for Jesus. Get desperate for Jesus. In the Bible, every time we see someone get to a point where it looks hopeless, The answer is to get desperate for Jesus' presence. In your marriage, if you've reached the point where you think it is irreparable, it's impossible, it's done and dead, we'll never come back from this, get desperate for Jesus. Because every story in the New Testament where someone gets to the end of their human capability, then we have to get desperate for the presence of Jesus to do the thing that we can't do on our own which is actually how the Christian life is supposed to be lived. In Mark 1, when Jesus is healing people and the leper comes to him and he says, and he tells Jesus, would you just command this leprosy to be gone? He's just desperate for Jesus to speak the words and Jesus heals him. In Matthew 8, this centurion comes to Jesus because he has a, a sick servant and he comes to Jesus and he says, like, I just need you to speak the words out loud. I just need you to command. You don't even have to go there. I know that if you will just say the words that they'll be saved. In Luke 8, there's a woman who's had a discharge of blood her entire life, and no physician has ever been able to heal her, and she weaves her way through the crowds of people so she can just reach out and just grab on to Jesus' robe, because if I could just touch him, he will do what no one else can do. And she's healed. She's just desperate to be in his presence. You have friends that are just far from hope, and you don't even know what to tell them anymore. You don't have any advice left. They're like, a, they're like a paralytic, man. They can't do anything right. When the friends have the paralytic, and they have no power to heal him, they drag him. We don't even know if he wanted to go. They didn't, we don't know if they asked his permission, but, I mean, he couldn't fight back. He's a paralytic. What are you going to do, bite me? They drag him up onto a roof, cut a hole in it, and drop him down on Jesus. And Jesus saves him. Get desperate for Jesus' presence in your life. There there aren't other answers. The answer is to be in Jesus' presence. The answer is that Jesus wants you to thrive. If you don't know what to say, you don't have to say anything. Listen, I have friends and loved ones that I've loved for a long time, and I know I am annoying, and I will drag them into Jesus' presence. And oftentimes, I know they're so reluctant, and I will manipulate them into Jesus' presence because Jesus will save you. And he will do what none of us can do. He will change hearts. I I can't make you love him. I just keep dragging people in front of Jesus, and I just waiting for him to do miracles.
Look at the gift, not the sin. Do what Jesus does, which is to open up scripture and do what God tells you to do and get desperate for Jesus' presence. Those are the things to do when it is just not working, not just in marriage, not just if you're approaching divorce or considering it, but in any area where you just feel like there's no hope left in this world, Jesus is hope. In your life, if you feel like there's not hope, I don't just mean in your relationship, I mean just in your life, you feel like there's not hope, I just want to tell you today, there is great hope. There is great contentment. There is great peace. There is great fulfillment. There is a life that you maybe have never tasted before, but I will promise you that if you taste it, your life will never be the same. That Jesus does that. You don't believe me? Ask, ask anyone in here who has experienced the goodness of Christ what it did for them. When Paul is giving his apologetic in 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus, He tells people, if you don't believe me, ask someone that met him. It's that powerful. If marriage, if marriage is supposed to be a reflection or a mirror of Jesus and the church, because that's what Ephesians 5, 31 through 33 tells us, that that this oneness, this, this way that we would come together, man and woman in marriage is supposed to mirror how Jesus loves his bride to the church. If marriage is supposed to mirror Jesus in the church, then we should think about this idea of irreconcilable differences, this this justification we often use in marriage. You know, aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't claim irreconcilable differences with us? When we were his enemies, when we were far from him, when we would take him and ourselves would have beaten him and ourselves would have nailed him up to that cross when we were far from him, when he hated him, he came to die for us. That's irreconcilable differences that he chose to reconcile. So there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences in your marriage because you don't have a savior that claimed irreconcilable differences with you. So the gospel is at the heart of marriage. In the same way that Jesus would reconcile the irreconcilable is the way he will Bring hope and peace and healing into your marriage. There is great hope for your marriage. I don't know if it's good or bad or terrible or amazing, but there's great hope for your marriage. God wants your marriage to thrive. And, and, and you participate that in that. You participate in that in the way that you pursue God and the way you pursue your spouse. And there's real work to do. You and I are sinful creatures in the process of being transformed by a holy God. And it has an impact on our marriage. I just want you to know there's hope. We care about you and your marriage. We have a high view of your marriage. There's a reason we keep telling you to go pick up a devotional. There's a reason I keep saying go sign up for the marriage conference that we're putting on. We didn't bring in out of speaker or out of town speakers uh, for your entertainment. We brought it in for your sanctification. We brought it in because we care about your marriage and we're trying to find a way to impact it with the gospel. So you make those decisions to pursue the Lord and pursue your spouse. Would you do me a favor today? We're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different. And I realize that some of that's a little bit, this is going to be a little bit awkward. But um, if you're married today, I, I'd like you and your spouse to come down somewhere uh, to the altar and just rededicate your marriage to the Lord.
Just pray together. If you're single, I would love for you to just find a place somewhere down here and just dedicate your life and your singleness and your relationship status to the Lord. The decisions you would make about relationships would be those that are glorifying to God, those that you put the a future of those relationships in his hands, not in yours to manipulate. If you're married, I would ask uh, that you ask God to make you personally more desperate for him and desperate for your spouse, more hungry for Jesus' presence in your marriage. So if you're here without your spouse, and man, you, you, you're like, man, I, I wish they were here with me. I would like you to just come up and pray for them. Put them in God's hands, not your own. You're not uh, asked in the Bible to manipulate your spouse. You're not asked to save them. You're not asked to convict them. You're asked to love a uh, Love a holy God desperately around them and in hopes that they will be transformed. So as we play this song, if, you, if you're married or if you're single, uh, would come up and just find a spot at the altar. Our elders and prayer team will be kind of out in the aisles. If you'd like specific prayer, if you'd like to talk to us about what it looks like to take a next step with Jesus, if you'd like to talk about marriage counseling or anything else, we're going to be kind of filtering out here just to pray with you. You move as the Lord leads you. We love you.